Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, a couple things up top. Number one, I realized something I forgot to put in the Seeking Christ Through Buddhist Meditation episode, which, by the way, not gotten a ton of plays. I wonder what's going on there. <laughs> I think it might be a little outside some people's comfort zones, and that's fine. Uh, but I can't believe I forgot to add this. I tried to go to a Buddhist meditation service in the Seattle area and like do what Mark was doing in London and uh, what I found was this was not the same kind of Buddhist meditation service. The one that he goes to is like 45 minutes of silence. And I was like, that's cool. I could do 45 minutes of silence with some Buddhists. And it was like full on written liturgy, you know, like 45 minutes of verbal prayers to like particular Buddhist deities. I don't even know if that's the right language for it. It was like a particular form of I think Tibetan Buddhism, and it was like it. I mean, I they were very kind to me. There were like three of them, and I was the fourth person in this like creaky chair because I am not good enough to sit down on like a pillow, you know, and do the like the lotus posture or whatever. It was they were really sweet, but it was awkward, and um, it was definitely not what I was expecting. And I just can't believe I forgot to include that. I wanted to, to tell you guys about that because it's funny. So I, I'm still kind of looking. I'm interested in 
if I could find uh, something nearby that's mostly just silence, I just think it would be great to be in a situation where I'm supposed to be silent for 45 minutes. I think I would really benefit from that. And I wouldn't be praying to the Buddha or anything like that. I would be praying to the Christian God. Um, but anyway, I haven't found that yet. Um, I Instead of doing a listener question this week, I am going to try something a little different and I'm going to explain a particular prayer practice that I have found helpful and that maybe some of you will find helpful. I call it the Protestant Rosary. So that will be after the main episode. Um, and then I got to say that uh, this episode title is different, right? Everything up until now has been you have permission to something. And I just couldn't get this one to fit there. And so I'm breaking habit, breaking tradition. And I'm just calling this what I think it should be called, uh, which is that love the sinner, hate the sin is psychologically impossible. That's really what I want to say. That's what this is about. It, it goes beyond that, actually. But that's where we kind of start. And uh, I just couldn't get that into the normal form. So forgive my inconsistency. Probably you don't care at all. Now to today's topic, Richard Beck, someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. He's a psychologist, a professor, a speaker and an author of many books. His work is right in the sweet spot for me personally, the overlap of psychology and Christian faith and theology. This is more or less where I am headed professionally, and it's encouraging to have had a conversation like this one, so full of interesting stuff, challenging stuff, but also inspiring stuff. We talk a good bit about disgust, which is a big factor in the impossibility of love the sinner, hate the sin, but we also talk about spiritual habits and practices uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, cockroaches and orange juice, just tons of interesting stuff. And as you can imagine, that's kind of why I wanted to do this uh, Protestant rosary thing at the end, because it's going to tie into the latter half of the conversation. So no more to say here, really. Let's get into it. So, Richard, what exactly is disgust psychology? That's something that's going to be very important for the rest of this conversation. But what is it? Well, disgust psychology is this, the psychological system surrounding the emotion of disgust and related to the emotion of disgust are attributions of what is disgusting. And that sometimes can be called uh, contamination psychology. And, and it's mainly a food System it, it regulates us uh, not eating things or ingesting things that would you know be harmful or toxic to our bodies, but the, our interest I think in this podcast are less about the food, and it's more about how that disgust gets imported into social and moral uh, domains and to existential domains as well. And so this emotion and these contamination judgments uh, are used to regulate how we feel about people and how we reason about morality. But in terms of the food, there's a really good example in the book. You say, imagine you have a bunch of saliva in your mouth. No problem, right? Spit that saliva into a Dixie cup and then tell someone, drink that Dixie cup saliva. It was literally just in your mouth. Nothing has changed, but we would not want to drink that saliva back in. Right. It's a good illustration of how disgust 
And contamination is a boundary monitoring psychology. Hmm. It's something that is on the inside of the body, is not considered disgusting. We have no trouble swallowing the saliva in our mouth. But the minute it crosses the boundary, the body leaves and is on the outside. Suddenly, what was previously a part of me is now foreign, strange, alien. And we have this you know, disgust reaction facing the prospect of reincorporating it. And again, with food – that makes perfect sense. But when we start using emotions to regulate who's on the inside or the outside of my tribe or my people or my my affectional horizon, then that's when the psychology gets problematic. So what are the type of things that trigger disgust emotions? Maybe we could start with food type stuff and then triggers that go beyond food. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about disgust is that, well, two things. There's a lot of cultural variability of what would be considered disgusting. I think everybody can think of a food that they find disgusting that somebody else doesn't find disgusting. And then if you've traveled internationally or you face very different cuisines, you realize so a lot, lots of different cultures eat things that we would find disgusting. And so there's a lot of variability there. And psychologists believe that there's so much variability in disgust because our food attribution system was really hardwired at birth. Humans wouldn't have a great deal of flexibility as we as we travel to different ecosystems. So there needs right. to be kind of a yeah there needs to be kind of a window of of kind of plasticity, very similar to learning like your native language, um, where you're kind of pre-wired and equipped to kind of learn any sort of native language. Children can soak up different languages. And the idea here is that disgust becomes this uh, opportunity for us to kind of learn the tastes of our cultures. And then once we learn the tastes of our cultures, then that kind of becomes hardened. And then we become anything different from that outside of the kind of normal foodstuffs of a culture. Uh, we're going to approach with a little bit more hesitancy or, or wariness. And so it's that plasticity that, that seems to be a part of what allows disgust to kind of attach on to other kinds of things like, like people groups or morality. And then there's just a lot of what interpersonal differences, uh, what one person finds disgusting, uh, another person doesn't. And so, so that's a, obviously a funny thing. If you can kind of master your disgust response as a young child, you can disgust all the other kids on the playground by picking up something disgusting. So there's great power in this emotion where you can use it as a force to kind of uh, push people away if you've mastered your disgust. And so there isn't one set of stimuli that's consistent across all people, although there, there tend to be kind of clusters of stimuli that seem to be pretty reliable disgust triggers. And those have been studied extensively by social and cultural psychologists. Like flesh wounds and stuff like that. You know, physical deformities, gore, poor hygiene can trigger disgust reactions, bodily fluids are reliable disgust triggers, certain animals from bugs or snakes or rats are reliable disgust triggers um, in, in certain cultures. Sexuality itself can be a disgust trigger. People can see certain sex acts as disgusting. And obviously people groups are, 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 have for a variety of reasons been considered as unclean or sources of social contamination. So now we're moving into this next realm of what I want to talk about anyway, which is taking disgust from food and gore into the realm of morals. And so we are aware that people have all different kinds of morals, but you want to distinguish and psychologists want to distinguish between the type of moral intuitions that come from disgust and contamination versus the kind of morals that come from other other types of psychology. So what do you mean by that? Well, some of your readership might be familiar with Jonathan Haidt's work um, on moral foundations and moral grammars. And if, if they're not familiar with his work, they can look at his TED Talks or read his book, The Righteous Mind, 
But hate breaks down kind of the moral grammar. You can kind of think of this as kind of like the basic building blocks of moral psychology across cultures. Um, and the domains are uh, harm, fairness, in-group loyalty, respect for authority, and then purity, sanctity. And disgust is kind of the emotion that kind of regulates that kind of purity, sanctity domain. Pretty, pretty consistently, uh, human cultures have uh, looked at some parts of their shared life or their moral life um, as a purity violation. And, and even though that seems to be something that kind of you'd see more among kind of conservative Christian traditions, even liberals have their own versions of what is they, – they have their own purity concerns. And can, sometimes it can show up in, yeah, sexual morality for a conservative evangelical Christian. But it, amongst progressives, you'll often – will see uh, people think about um, oppression in purity terms, not being complicit in oppressive structures. Um, and you also will see it uh, amongst liberals in things like the environment uh, and also food. Um, it shows up a lot in our worry about pure food or pure water. It, it shows up all over the place uh, when you run into it, kind of how we reason about something as good or bad in the idiom of contaminated versus pure. And contamination can be with people, you know, this can be political or religious. Oh, you co-authored with Rob Bell, therefore I can't like anything that you did or – Joe Biden once took a photo with this with Rush Limbaugh. Therefore, I'm questioning if Biden's really in the tribe. You know, like if you rub off against the wrong person, that can contaminate you sort of going forward in the eyes of some. Oh, yeah. I mean, so that's going back to the issue of boundary monitoring. So it's like this discuss is going to monitor the boundary of a tribe. And and so therefore, if somebody who isn't a part of your tribe shows up on the inside, right, that's that saliva spit example that we were talking about. Something something has gotten across that boundary. And the other aspect that you're illustrating there is just an attribution of you know contact, is that whenever proximity is is problematic when you're reasoning about something with purity. So so mere association is is a, a trigger. So like in the Gospels, when Jesus is eating with, again, mere proximity, eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, that proximity triggers a contamination concern. And yeah, and we see our we see modern versions of that all the time about just that mere association or embrace of that other person um, becomes a location of worry, liberals and conservatives. So I will – we don't need to talk a ton about um, – I, I say it height. You say hate, but Jonathan Haidt's uh, – Moral Foundations Theory, I talk about the righteous mind. I talked about it a ton on the Depolarized podcast, um, my older show. Not a ton yet on here, but it's going to keep coming up. You should definitely read that book if you haven't read it. I, I tell people it was like my origin of species. It sort of blew my mind so so consistently and thoroughly. But so tying this purity foundation into theological reflection – one thing about disgust and sort of purity reasoning is it's it's very affective. It's very emotive. Um, it gets into our gut in a way that, let's say, reasoning about liberty or the government shouldn't shouldn't put this limit on somebody. That that's kind of the sixth foundation that Hayden is his colleagues are looking at. That doesn't do the same thing. A libertarian doesn't necessarily like want to gag at imagining a limit on liberty. But if we see somebody having sex with a sheep or something, it's gross to us. It has a different emotive trigger. What do you think is important about acknowledging that when we are starting to think about how this affects our faith and our theology? 
Yes. So some of these violations of other the, the other moral foundations like fairness or harm, when we see harm or we see something that's unfair, it'll stir in us kind of anger. So that's probably the, the liberal or even libertarian social justice warrior anger at this this violation. But disgust, yeah, is going to trigger kind of a visceral revulsion towards towards people. And that has been tr- shown to be a very dehumanizing emotion. It, it's treating that person as – Again, subhuman. So one of my favorite quotes is from uh, the anthropologist Levi Strauss that says, humanity ends at the border of the tribe. And so if disgust is one of those emotions that monitors the border of the tribe, then anyone on the outside is subhuman in some way. And disgust is often the emotional sign that that has occurred, that they have been kind of expelled from that inner circle again, right? So they're not a part of me, a, a part of a shared humanity but they are rather lacking in some essential human feature. So that's going to be they're not as smart as I am, but normally it's they, they're lacking some sort of human virtue. They're, they're emotionally incapacitated. They're bad people. They're evil people uh, in some way. And so yeah, and so from that dehumanization, you get to de- demonization. And so the disgust is often implicated in the very worst feelings we have toward outgroup members. So I think that's why it's particularly toxic versus just an, being angry at somebody. Um, I would say this though. Let me add this: that yeah, a libertarian might say I don't feel revol- revulsion towards people. But the other thing to keep track here of is a closely related emotion to disgust is contempt. Um, it, it, it's a very similarly related in the face. You often see a wrinkling of the nose. Uh, it tends to be though more hierarchical. Um, you're looking down your nose at somebody. And and uh, that is still just one of the most dehumanizing emotions. And so when I talk to people about disgust and some of your listeners are going, yeah, I don't really feel revulsion. But then I, I ask people to say, but if you look at the way you react to your social media feed, do you ever feel like the world is filled with idiots? And they're like, yeah, I do yes, feel yeah. that. <laughs> and so contempt can put puts. I think contempt puts all of us on the hook. So, so the whole suite of emotions from disgust to contempt. I think we all are implicated in that. Let's put a little bit more meat on the bone, uh, pun intended, and and and, the, and look at disgust psychology a bit more. You mentioned four specific examples of disgust psychology. Macbeth effect, scapegoating, practices of exclusion, and flight from the body. Let's go through those just briefly. The Macbeth effect. What's that? Yeah. So the Macbeth effect is the is again. It's it's kind of our natural innate tendency to treat um, our our sins as physical contaminants. This is like when people want to take a shower after they watch pornography or something. Yeah. You know, another example of this is. Um, a study where psychologists bring in people and they show them Hitler's – well, they say it's a sweater and they tell them this was a sweater that was once worn by Hitler and ask if they would put it on and how uncomfortable they would be putting it on. And most people would not – they don't want to put on or touch Hitler's sweater. But it's, but it's an example of how even though logically we know that evil morality can adhere to a wool blend, we, we, we act as if – his evil has gotten into this fabric and the fab and it'll get off on the fabric into us. And so that effect is the way we kind of again reason about morality in these visceral physical terms. And so we feel literally con- physically contaminated. And proximity with sinners feels physically contaminating to us. Um 
The second one was scapegoating. Scapegoating. And so, so obviously once we put these kind of judgments of contamination on a group of people, then a scapegoating mechanism kicks in. Again, disgust is expulsive. And so we achieve purity by identifying those people who are unclean and expelling them from community. So you see those practices and what the Pharisees were doing. They were identifying the unclean, um, purging them from community, and they were upset for Jesus for welcoming them you know, back in. Um, the third one was practices of exclusion, right? Yeah. So, so again, I think that's just an example of scapegoating. We're always engaged in kind of, at least affectionately, we may not physically exclude people, but there's kind of an affectional displacement from, from a hesitant, a hesitancy to give people, um, the benefit of the doubt or the full will to embrace. So their humanity is fragile for us because of that. And then I think the fourth one was flight from the body. Yeah, that's a whole other big thing we can talk about. Um, but quickly, that psychologists beyond just seeing disgust triggered by people and more moral uh, categories, there's a whole cluster of disgust responses around things like hygiene, uh, uh, corpses and dead people, gore, viscera. Uh, animals, like we talked about small animals, um, sexuality, and uh, old age. Um, and, and so psychologists have puzzled about these, these triggers because they're not really about morals. They're not really about people groups, but they seem to cluster around the fragilities and neediness of the body. And so psychologists have called these um, kind of – called mortality reminder – so it seems to be that there are certain aspects of our, or our animal, physical, bodily nature that worries us existentially, bring, brings our mortality, our death to mind. And so the, the expulsive mechanism of disgust is used to kind of shove those th- stimuli away from us as a way of kind of keeping them out of mind. And the argument I make is that that becomes a high hospitality obstacle because then people or bodies that remind us of our uh, – our vulnerabilities uh, be, become shoved away, become locations of disgust or um, unease or anxiety. And so I think this is part of the reasons why we have trouble welcoming um, you know, senior citizens and the elderly, uh, why we struggle with the mentally ill in our society, why we struggle with poverty and homelessness, why we distru- struggle with disabilities of a variety of kinds, that people that remind us of the way our bodies can fail just make us uncomfortable. And you see this in media. You see this on church stages where we kind of privilege youthfulness and beauty and talent and success. And and uh, so so and, and Jesus and like Mother Teresa and there's all these examples of like going directly at that lepers and the poor of Bangladesh and Calcutta and like I mean that's like the that's Christianity coming right up against sort of the hard edges of human psychology. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and psychologists talk about how our, our American culture is characterized by kind of this general denial of death. It's sometimes it's called the pornography of death in some literature where, where death is – and this is – death here is our, our mortality, our vulnerability, that it's almost inappropriate to bring that up. And so we don't want to see it out in public. We don't want to see that on the stage. And so we we – it's kind of like the Disneyfication of America, the, the American dream, where it's just youth and success and, and, and talent, just people with perfect teeth and suntans. 
so we like to live in a deathless uh, fantasy land. And yeah, and, and 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 Jesus, Mother Teresa, and many others have said, you know, they go right into that. They're they're with the homeless, with the poor, in the dirt, in the grime, with the broken, psychically broken, physically broken. Um, but again, so for a lot of Americans, that's going to be very uncomfortable. They're not going to want to go into those spaces. They're going to feel anxious in those spaces. Um, they might want to tour those spaces, but they don't want to live there day in and day out. Let me throw a devil's advocate question at you. Suppose someone's listening and they say, well, look, Richard, who cares? Like this stuff is all very interesting, maybe from a purely psychological standpoint. But at one point, Jesus says those who are not for us are against us. There's all kinds of stuff about false teachers and false messiahs in the New Testament. This is all great, but I think that what God wants me to do is determine who is leading people astray and avoid those people, whether or not that makes me feel disgust for them. That's kind of beside the point. How would you respond to that? Well, one of the places I start with is uh, 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 an idea that Miroslav Volf, the theologian, uh, talks about in his book Exclusion and Embrace. And he talks about what he calls the will to embrace. And in Volf's description of the will to embrace is that the will to embrace is kind of this affectional, uh, this unconditional affectional embrace of a person's humanity prior to making any other judgments about them. So it's the, it's the first thing we do is we embrace that person's humanity. And then we can have other kinds of conversations about how we want to classify that person. So before we see a straight person or a gay person, we see their humanity first. Before we see a Republican or a Democrat uh, and that before we see somebody who's orthodox or heretical, we have to embrace their humanity first because if we don't – then the pursuit of orthodoxy and the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of purity becomes right very, very toxic. And, and I think we've seen plenty of examples where communities that try to police an internal purity uh, are extraordinarily damaging. And again, the other aspect of this discussed psychology that we talked about is it's not just that, that it's a boundary policing kind of psychology. It's an expulsive psychology, right? And I'm not saying that there isn't time to kind of draw a line or uh, ask somebody to leave the community. And I want to be clear here because typically when we talk about those expulsive moments, we're thinking of like conservatives who kind of kick out the gay person. That's an, that is an example. But even, even liberals have their own sense that some people aren't welcome here. So in the safe space conversations, they're saying this is a space where you're just not welcome. And that doesn't mean you're a evil person, but – you make this context unsafe. And so so we all have our versions of who's welcome and who's not welcome. But those only become humane if the person being walked out, they're, they're still in relationship with that person. So in this time, in this place, you're not welcome. But that doesn't mean you're never welcome and that doesn't mean we're, we'll talk afterwards and that we have a space for you. I mean – and all I'm trying to say is if, if we can embrace people's humanity, we can make those deci- – we can make those difficult decisions – in humane and human ways rather than in kind of dehumanizing ways where we scapegoat people and expel them from the community and say you're beyond hope and beyond rehabilitation. Would this be accurate to say that you would encourage that person to recognize, first of all, that in the Gospels, Jesus is very willing and very quick to associate with any type of person? Number two, that there is a psychological barrier that we can identify and quantify to doing that. And so even if Jesus wants to say, go and sin no more, even if we want to look for orthodoxy because 
it is important sometimes to have orthodoxy if we're going to be a realist about the situation we find ourselves in as human beings then we should take the evidence seriously that there are impediments to that first step of just showing up and accepting their humanity and so we we should then take that seriously and be willing to take whatever measures are necessary to allow us to take that first Christ-like step yeah and i think that's a great that's a great story um because jesus says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. So, so he extends the will to embrace. I, I am not condemning you. I'm not judging you. He embraces her humanity as it is. Yes, people then want to rush to the next thing, go and sin no more. But again, n- notice that conversation about sin is flowing out of the will to embrace. I don't condemn you, and I'm not going to condemn you. Like liberals love the first part of that story, and then conservatives always try to trumpet with the back end of the story. And so we fight over the story uh, about what it really means. And I, and I actually think it means something that can speak to both both sides of the equation. But I, I agree that I think its main thrust is he doesn't pick up a stone. And anything he says to her downstream is without a stone in his hand. And you're right that that for many of us, it's hard to us to enter into these conversations without stones in our hands because we already have – a suite of psychological judgments and biases and feelings before we even encounter that person. Yeah, I was just going to say, your whole book might be sort of saying, look, our default is to pick up stones. Here's the psychology behind it. If you want to be a Christ follower and not pick up the stone before considering her humanity, then you need to know this stuff. Yeah, and I would even say when I when I go to churches and I talk about this, it's is that we pick up the stones kind of unconsciously and automatically. Because these are emotions, they aren't decisions. So it's not like people are going like, today's the day where I will pick up a stone you know, on, on my way out my front door to throw it at the first person I disagree with. No, you just, you're just walking down the street and you see a bumper sticker and, and you have feelings about that. And, and no matter where I go, I try to kind of walk people through kind of triggers that they might have. Because we all like to vision ourselves as kind of warm, accepting, kind. You know, we are, we're lovers in our own eyes. But you know, if I'm out of California, I'm from Texas, and so they're already kind of going like, "Why am I listening to this guy from Texas?" Because you know, I'm the bad part of the country. And if and I could I could walk through a variety of triggers with Californians. You know, like gun owners and hunters. If I showed up in camo. They, like they already have some emotions well in play before I even open my my mouth. But if I'm if I'm in Texas and I came from California and I and, and I tell I tell my Texan audience that you know like I'm a vegan and I care about climate change, you know their 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 wheels are already spinning about the kind of person I am, and 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 we've already found ourselves very far apart emotionally, and we lose the will to embrace. Uh, so quickly, and I think we've seen the consequences of that. Is that once those emotions get out there, uh, the contempt, the interpersonal revulsion, it's very hard to find our way back to each other. So my next question was: What is the danger of refusing to reflect on the psychological dimension of faith and theology? But I mean, we're answering it right now, right? It's like if we don't notice that part going on inside of us, then we will not have access to the best ideas and arguments and formulations of an entire swath of the body of Christ, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the the consequences are in in the public sphere, right? We're we're reaping those consequences. We're getting more and more polarized and we're, we're increasingly unable to talk to each other. 
and by more and more polarized, we're, we're, we're moralizing the debate more and more and more. So it's not a debate against rival ideas and, and competing values that we have to kind of navigate as a democracy. It is literally more and more a, a battle between good and evil. And that that raises the stakes, that raises the emotions. Uh, it's, 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 and it's very hard to compromise with evil if you if you consider the other side evil. And so our, our political discourse is becoming a, a, a zero-sum game. The fabric of the country is falling apart because of that, because the shared humanity of this de- democratic project is being lost. But your point is, yeah, the the downside for the for the church is that right the the our ability to uh, love and welcome the way Jesus did to to live into his very hardest commands to to love our enemies, yeah, that becomes just impossible. And then, so we could say, there's the public sphere, there's the church in general, and then there's just the individual believer. And if I refuse to look at my own psychological emotive dimension of my faith then how much Christ-likeness am I leaving on the table, basically? You know, one of the things I like to talk about with churches is how God always is coming to us in strangers. All through Scripture, God shows up in unexpected people and and unexpected faces. And if we are not attentive to the way we are reacting to people in automatic and in emotional ways – then, then we're going to miss the God who com- who comes to us in the person standing right in front of us, the person checking us out of the grocery store, or, or that office coworker, or the difficult person in our life that um, you know when we see him coming, we feel irritated. Like that's that's the arena in which God will come to us. It's not in these. It's not on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter that we're going to be, you know. Being the good Samaritan, that's it, it's in the it's the incarnated local context of our lives, and unless we're attending in very concrete ways about who am I not welcoming, who am I reacting to emotionally, and then being intentional about trying to move against those impulses, then you find yourself what I call in one of my books a social autopilot. And when you're on social autopilot, you're not making decisions; you're just irritated here, annoyed there, disdainful here. And all of those emotions are pushing you away from opportunities where we're asked to practice grace and mercy and kindness. So this leads into these two common phrases about sin uh, or ways of looking at sin that become really psychologically problematic. They become very difficult to instantiate, although they sound good. The first one is one that I think we would say is theologically sound. It's the idea that all sins are equal in God's eyes. God doesn't have a hierarchy of sins. I mean, this is all over the letters of Paul. You know, if you do any of these sins, you're sinful. You you have sin. No particular kind of sin will keep you from the love of God, and no one has no sin. So this idea that all sins are equal is theologically good, but is it psychologically impossible for us to actually live out that belief? Yeah, the argument I make— um, in my book is that, yeah, all sins might be theologically equal, but all sins aren't psychologically equal. Depending on the way we psychologically frame that sin, and it's often through metaphorical language that we we frame certain sins in certain kinds of ways, they activate different psychologies. And depending on those psychologies, they can have you know more or less toxic psychological effects. And so the argument that I've made is that, that when, when we tend to frame sins as purity violations – we're, we're activating that revulsion toward the self or toward other people. 
And, and again, that is – those are particularly dehumanizing emotions. And so we have to be very, very careful when we deploy purity metaphors because we're not just activating a theology. We're activating gut, visceral reactions that people are going to direct toward themselves. If, 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 you, if you cause a human being through your theological language to feel revolted or disgusted about themselves, their humanity – or again, these are they, – they start feeling like they are subhuman. That – that can be damaging in lasting ways. That leads to a follow-up before I get to the other um, category about purity culture, right? And sexual purity. These you, you write that these kinds of sins and claims are regulated by purity metaphors as opposed to other kinds of metaphors. What consequence does that have for specifically thinking about sexual sin and sexual purity? So we can kind of understand sin – generically as a purity violation. So I think that's very common in religious circles where where our, our, we're sinners and we're unclean, but Jesus's death, his blood, our baptism, so on and so forth, cleanses us. And so we're, we're, we've been cleaned. That said, beyond that generic usage, you typically see purity deployed very specifically towards sexual sins. And as best I can tell, at least in evangelical culture, almost uniquely applied to sexual sins. Nobody talks about justice or materialism or honesty. We don't talk about bully purity culture, right? Like, so you can be a bully. We don't talk that way about <laughs> pride or greed or gluttony or any of those sins. We don't – it's not once a glutton, always a glutton. Nobody talks that way. Yeah. Mostly we – yeah. Most of our sins we frame as like uh, performance errors, as mistakes or walking metaphors like we're walking and we fa- we stumble and we fall. And all of those metaphors imply a really easy route to rehabilitation. If you stumble and fall, you get back up. If you make a mistake, you know, you try again. But purity, one of the aspects of uh, contamination psychology is the attribution of permanence. And so psychologists will put like a, a cockroach in some juice and uh, take it out and ask the person to drink it. And obviously people will not drink it because it's Right, disgusting. Now it's contaminated. Right, but then the psychologists they'll filter it, and people still won't drink it, and they'll filter it again. They'll boil it. They'll try to sanitize it, and, and even though logically they know it's probably cleaner than it was before, I saw that a cockroach is in that exact juice, and so I won't drink it. That's the attribution of permanence. Once contaminated, always contaminated, and, and I think that's behind the kind of the, the kind of damaged goods phenomenon we see we in. Purity culture, where if a person loses, particularly a female, uh, loses her virginity, she's ruined, um, and that's a permanent state, and, and there's no easy route to rehabilitate that. In fact, I would argue that that for evangelical males, sexual sin still is framed as a performance error, right? It's it's a mistake. Yeah, I messed up. I'll just try to do better. But for her, it's not framed as a performance error. It's framed as a loss of Purity, again, a loss of purity is going to trigger those emotions of disgust and revulsion towards herself and her body. And again, the the stories we know coming out of purity culture are because of that psychology, because we explicitly activate it, double down on it, raise the stakes on it. Um, and then then people have to carry the emotional burden of of that if they if they fail. And it seems like the narrative that we give to boys in evangelical purity culture is, look, God made you to be a stallion, and we know that like once you're married, you know, go to town, full throttle. And so there's a there's a sense that like, well, if you jump the gun a little bit, 
you're doing what you ought to do. You're just doing it too early. And so maybe that's why it's more like a performative thing as opposed to for the girls, like you have only so much of yourself to give and each bit is going to be taken away. No, I agree. Yeah. And so that just kind of goes back to the point is that is that that these these sins might be in one in, in a conversation might be equal. You know, it's just as bad. But the emotions that get activated with all of those kinds of things are very, very different. And so, yeah, sins might be theologically equal, but they're not psychologically equal. And I think anybody that has been in churches knows knows that that topography very well about what sins are the most stigmatized and what gets a pass. So yeah, that was my first sort of category of sin was them being equal. The second one is this tried and true phrase, hate the sin, but love the sinner. It sounds good to us, but you say it's almost impossible to practice it. Why is that the case? Well, again, I think it goes back to Miroslav Volf's will to embrace. And so the idea in that is to embrace a person's humanity before you make any other judgments about them. And so before you see a sinner, you see a person. So we see that with Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery. He sees her first. And then you know, after he sees her, yeah, he might have a conversation about sin. But the Pharisees see it differently. They see a woman caught in the act of adultery first. So they see the sinner first. And they because they see that first, they can't recover her humanity on the other side of that. And so my point is that it's it's very the, the whole love the sinner, hate the sin is problematic because you've already seen that person as a sinner. You're you're, you're seeing them through the lens of uh, their sin. And I think any honest person knows. And if you have deep, visceral feelings about some sin, some moral failure, that it is very hard to look at people who engage in that sin with any sort of affection or humanity. And I want to put – listen, I want to put, again, liberals and conservatives on the hook here. If, you, if, if you're a liberal and somebody said, I voted for Donald Trump, it would be very hard to see that person as a human being <laughs> – Right, an intelligent, kind, good human being, because you saw their their vote first and don't know their story and don't know why they did that. But in the same way, if uh, a conservative person sees a, a, a transgender person, they're going to see that first, and they're not going to hear that person's story on the other side. I'm just coming back to this theme that. It's not like people are choosing to be inhospitable. We're just emoting and having quick emotional reactions towards these kind of uh, ways we categorize people from politics to the way they dress to their ethnicity to their sexual orientation to on and on and on. Yeah, I, I think that whole idea that if we could just say just make a separation between you know the people and the human beings and, and the, the acts that they engage in as if that's somehow easy to do. Uh, I think it's almost impossible to draw a clean line between our feelings about some things and the people that are engaging in those things. And, and to act like you – that's not the most difficult thing in the world, um, I, th I, think, I think we're setting people up for a lot of failure. Something I keep finding myself thinking as I'm listening to you is why? Why did the Purity Foundation develop in, in conjunction with all this visceral disgust stuff – and why are most other sins considered performance errors? And why does it have to be that there are such strong psychological consequences for the purity stuff such that we end up like having these true others in our midst that really get so much more of the brunt 
of our hatred and derision and our lack of acceptance. I mean, I guess I'm sort of asking like, why did God allow that or, or, or how did it come to be? And I don't know if you have any thoughts on just like how we got here to the, to this state of affairs that we can look at and, and learn about psychologically. I'll, I'll go back to Jonathan, uh, Haidt's work again, because, uh, one of his big points is that, is that in his early research, he noticed that liberals, tend to restrict their morality to uh, harm and injustice. And so that when they look at the world, the only moral filters they use are, is somebody being hurt um, or is something unfair? They asked this question on the surveys. A man buys a chicken, a cooked chicken from the store. He takes it home. Before he eats it, he has sex with it, cleans it out, and then eats it for dinner. Has anything wrong happened here? And conservative people, people from more collectivist cultures go, yeah. He's violated both himself and the chicken. People from liberal Western democracies mostly go, no, I mean, it's weird, but he didn't do any harm. Right. Yeah. That's a great example of what's called moral dumbfounding. He presents these scenarios to people and like Westerners will say, yeah, there's something wrong with that. But they have trouble from a Western kind of liberal democracy perspective because most of our legal codes are based upon harm and justice. And so since there's no – harm or, or injustice. So this is the libertarian ethic, right? Since nobody's being hurt, you should just let people do whatever they want. And yet, when you're, I'm sure your listeners first heard that discussion, they had a quick flash of, yeah, you know, like there's something wrong with that. But it's hard to give it, there's hard to give a liberal or liber, libertarian answer to that question about why it's wrong. But what it regulates, what you notice in these examples is, is that, is that Jonathan Haidt went around, went around and looked at different cultures, collectivist cultures or more traditional cultures, that that this discussed purity psychology tends to regulate kind of the divinity dimension. Humans kind of ha- work with this kind of chain of being where, where the gods and the angelic and the heavenly creatures are above us, the humans, and then there's the beasts, and that we are very concerned about degradation, and, and so, so humans are these par- – we're paradoxical creatures where we're kind of spiritual or angelic. We're above the beasts and why we're above the beasts can vary, right? Maybe we're above the beasts because we're rational or maybe it's because God has put the divine spark in us and we have a spiritual side. Regardless, there is a, there is a kind of a consistent concern in human culture that, that things can disintegrate back into the bestial so issues of like decorum and reverence um, are a part of what makes human life human. And again, that might seem to be a part of like a religious impulse, which you'll see more in traditional cultures. But even you know, even in America, even atheists have a sense of the sacred. Like like if I, I was at your like let's say you're a godless atheist, and I'm at your grandma's funeral, and I urinate while the service is going on. You'd be like, you just completely disrespected my you know, my grandma. And the answer there is because that's what a dog would do, right? A dog would urinate anywhere. But human beings do not urinate at the, at the funeral services of their loved ones because, in fact, the whole space is probably – has a decorum, right? You probably – not only did you not urinate, right? You dressed up. You probably said some words like you even tried to make that a sacred space. Maybe you didn't have a priest there if you're an atheist, but you're going to try to like hallow that in some sort of deep spiritual kind of way. And you'll notice if you pay attention 
that we have sacred spaces and sacred moments and sacred things all the time. I'm sure there's things in your house if I disrespected. Again, even if you're an atheist, like it was like a family heir- heirloom and I you know, wiped my mouth with it or – and so purity regulates this sacred dimension and that anything that kind of violates that, lowers that, profanes that – from objects to places to people triggers this kind of um, disgust, purity reaction to it. And so that's where it, that's where we think it comes from. It comes from the need for humans to create sacred spaces. And so that's why it's kind, of, it's kind of hard that we have to live with it, right? It's like we need the sacred space to be human beings, but yet, yet the psychology of the sacred can create all the negative things that we've seen regulating and policing sacred spaces and expelling the unclean from those sacred spaces. So you're right. It's it's a blessing and a curse. I don't think we can expunge it from human psychology because, you know, if nothing was sacred, then, right, then I don't know if we would be recognizably human anymore. So we have to learn to be self-reflective with it. My body bangs and twitches this brown Yes, you're right. This is not the normal transition music for the You Have Permission podcast. This is a song called In Stitches by the artist David Bazan. And I'm trying something new with this latest patron-only episode. If you guys like it, then I'll do more of these. Different tracks, different guests. But basically, I want to talk through some tracks from David Bazan's 2012 album, Curse Your Branches. And this week, I did that with my friend Bruce Freebie. Now, if you don't know who David Bazan is, he's the founder of the band Pedro the Lion, and he was one of the most influential voices in Christian independent music for about 15 years. In 2012, he officially and publicly left Christianity. This was kind of his breakup album with God, so to speak. In my own circles, this was a pretty big deal, something I've talked about a hundred times or more with friends over the years. And I wanted to go back through that record track by track, looking at lyrics and talking through the experience of that album coming out, also how it looks to us now seven years later. So, the first of these is live now for patrons, and it's about the final track, In Stitches, which we're listening to now. And it has a line in it, The crew have killed the captain, but they still can hear his voice. So, to hear this episode, you got to become a patron if you aren't one already. You can do that at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. And uh, you get, of course, all the other stuff. Two of these bonus episodes per month. Access to the Facebook group, which includes the listener questions that I generally answer at the end of questions, uh, end of episodes, that is. So, all right, enough about the ad. Hope you guys will like this patron episode and let me know if you do because that means i get to do more of these david bazan episodes all right back to the episode when job asked you the question you responded who are you to challenge your creator 
let's turn to scripture again here. First, I want to ask you about the vision of unclean animals being made clean that God sends to Peter in Acts 10. What is your interpretation from your perspective on all this stuff psychologically of that passage? Well, I mean, I think you can make a good argument that that racism was at the heart of the, the heart of the problem of the first century church. And, and the reason I'm going to make that argument is because um, that's what you see playing out in, in Acts. Jesus says, take the gospel into all, into all the nations. To, and the word there is ethnos. Take the gospel to all the ethnic groups. And they don't. <laughs> they, just, they just don't. And so God has to intervene again. Like in, so in a miraculous way, God has to kind of break through this kind of racial ethnic prejudice. And he does it by um, sending a vision to Peter uh, on the, and, and he's a kosher Jew and so he – a vision of unclean animals. So that would trigger a disgust reaction in Peter and the voice says, you know, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, uh, I can't. It's unclean. And then the voice says three times, right, do not call something unclean that God has made clean. The, the, the surface level meaning of the dream is about food, the natural domain of disgust. But we soon learn in the story that it's not about food. It's about human beings. It's about this racial ethnic issue because there's a knock at the door and servants from Cornelius, a Gentile, right? The, the foreigner has, has been, sent, been sent to get, collect Peter. And so Peter goes into his house. That's again a purity violation. As he's talking, the spirit falls upon the Gentiles. And then he says, well, I mean, it, the spirit has fallen on the Gentiles just like it did on us at Pentecost. So who, who would object to these people um, becoming baptized? And, and so he baptizes them. Well, the answer is lots of people are going to object. And that kicks off a huge other big problem that they got to resolve a couple chapters later in Acts 15 where they're kind of like, okay, these Gentiles are, are, are getting access to the kingdom and things are happening up in the church in Antioch. And like, what are we going to do? Um, and so again, they're fighting over this ethnic boundary between the Jew and the Gentile. Uh, so the, the the wall falls uh, down, and they welcome them into the church. But but it's short lived and it's fragile because if if and Paul tells the story in Galatians one about how Peter comes up to Antioch and he's kind of like seeing this new humanity emerge across these ethnic lines, and so he starts breaking bread with Gentiles. But then some. The Jews from Jerusalem come up and they see him doing that and they kind of say, let's restore the purity boundary. And so they redraw the boundary and he withdraws from fellowship and then Paul says, I confront him to his face. And for Paul, basically that boundary transgression between Jew and Gentile, between clean and unclean, for him, like the entire gospel is at stake in that. Like that's the heart of the gospel, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Like this this boundary, this purity boundary has been being – Violated, and it all begins with the Holy Spirit's actions in Acts ten. It triggers this; the, it, it's the universalizing impulse that that unleashes the church into the world um, that wasn't happening before that vision occurred. That's also a, a, an answer to the earlier question of why care about the psychology of all this stuff? Uh, who cares if it starts with food and ends up with people? Well, here we've got an example from the text of food to people directly, and so we should. Pay attention to the kind of revulsions that we have around food and other kinds of disgust and how they may um, find their way onto people. Um, but that leads into this question, my next question, which is uh, Jesus. Does he uphold the purity tradition of his day or does he deconstruct 
that purity tradition. I mean, the way I've argued it, and I know there's listeners that might disagree with me, but so I'll just kind of lay out my argument and, you know, be provocative. But but one way to think about what Jesus is doing is that is that the Old Testament kind of hands us, in good Hebrew fashion, uh, a tension, a, a, a debate. Um, and on one side of the debate is the Levitical purity sacrificial tradition, right, that there are sacred spaces and we do these rituals to keep that space pure and holy. Um, and again, it's an expulsive mechanism. It's going to kick out the impure, um, you know, expel those impure people from your midst. So there's that expulsive purity psychology in Leviticus. Opposed to that um, is the prophetic tradition that um, calls for, in Hosea 6, 6, mercy and not sacrifice. It's it's constantly looking for the person on the outs, other side of the purity boundary and embracing embracing them, and it, it it kind of can be very blunt in the degree to kind of discount the entire uh, Levitical tradition. The prophetic tradition can be very blunt, like like uh, uh, in the Psalms where it says, you know, you know, I don't really need any more goats. Like I own every goat on the hill. Like what I want is, you know, what I want is justice. That's what I want. I want um, freedom for the captive. And so you see that kind of squabble between the Levitical purity codes and the justice impulse and the prophets. And, um, and, that, and so Jesus kind of steps into that debate. So the Pharisees are looking at tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, and they're kind of doing a Levitical move, right? We're going to expel these people from Israel, and Jesus is doing something very different. He is welcoming them into table fellowship. It's exactly what he does with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, it's what he does with Zacchaeus. It's what he does with the centurion. He, like these people are welcomed into – they're welcomed in. And that triggers a purity concern from the Pharisees. And he quotes – Jesus quotes the prophetic tradition on, in his defense. He quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire – go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I think he's deconstructing some things there because he's basically saying – what what purity looks like in the eyes of God is this embrace of the sinner, um, the, his praxis of welcoming sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes and gentiles to the table is a is a I would say yeah a redefinition of what holiness looks like. So holiness isn't expel, expelling the unclean; it is embracing the unclean, and that still is a radically counterintuitive idea that we're still wrestling with. As I've been reading your book and, and thinking about this stuff, I I keep finding myself kind of jumping to what is probably a hasty conclusion, conclusion which is that all the purity stuff is bullshit and uh, all the pro, you know, all the moral problems with the kind of Christ I want to follow center around the purity. Shouldn't we just try and get rid of the purity thing but then I catch myself going, okay, but am I ju- in the in the in the way that Height talks about it? Am I just constitutionally a liberal person, and I don't have any choice over that? And is that uh, coloring my reasoning here? And you kind of talked about this earlier that like if nothing is sacred, that's a problem. So I don't know. How do you think about like because I'm reading your book and I'm like, I mean, it seems like you're making more of a liberal argument than a conservative argument. If I had to. If I had to weight it, you know, purity in these senses tends to come down on the conservative side more. But should we get rid of it altogether? 
Well, I think Jonathan uh, Haidt, in his work, went through a similar journey. Like if you read The Righteous Mind, you by the time you get to the end of it, you kind of see him as a liberal going, you know, I don't – I think there might be some wisdom in this purity stuff. Yeah. Like, like – and, uh, um, and so – uh, so yes, I think definitely when I wrote Unclean, um, by the end of it, like its big take-home message is kind of like this big open arm embrace of all of humanity, saints, sinners, right? The 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 Pharisee, the the tax collector, um, and and yeah, that can sound like just kind of like well, just liberal tolerance, right? Just everybody's welcome to the table, and all are welcome. Um, so I would say a couple things to push back on that. Number one, to, we've already talked about this. Everybody likes to see themselves as a tolerant lover. But when you start listing other people, you quickly realize, no, no, I actually do have emotional boundaries. I have a lot of contempt for people and a lot of judgments. Um, as I like to say to churches, we're all haters. <laughs> so so if if – this idea of welcoming all is really welcoming all, then there is going to be a cruciform moment where we're, we're, we're loving even the enemy, the outsider, the sinner, as we define it. Be- because a lot of those descriptions of welcoming people to the table, again, are really, man, self-indulgent. Like I know a lot of posts – evangelical Christians or progressive Christians that say, you know, all are welcome and, you know, I don't need to go to church and deal with all those lame people and bad coffee. Like like, like church for me is like some good friends and a bottle of wine and us sitting around the table and, you know, that's church for me. And that's, you know, that's the table. That's Eucharist. But odds are if I look around that table, there's probably going to be a lot of people that agree politically, you know, probably have the same skin color. Maybe if they have this, maybe maybe if they have different skin color, they're probably all from the same socioeconomic strata. Um, so a lot of multicultural spaces tend to be pretty homogeneous in socioeconomic status. So uh, so they're being exclusive in a different kind of way. Um, for example, I might have more in common with uh, a colleague of mine who's African American. Like Stephen is a good friend of mine here on campus. Stephen and I probably have more in common um, because we're academic professors than I would with a white person who is very, very poor. I would have hardly anything to talk to them about. So sometimes I think we've lost track of class in some of these conversations. Now, all I have to say is the table that Jesus would put together probably isn't the table that liberals or conservatives are envisioning. I think if we really have a cruciform table that we're going to look across and kind of go like – like. It's only because of Jesus that we would be friends. Like in no other social world where these unlikely friendships um, have occurred. And I think so. I think when you're looking at unlikely and surprising friendships, then you're probably closer to Jesus' vision of the table. So I think this is bigger. What I'm calling us to this embrace of the unclean is is bigger than just like yeah, everybody's welcome and just like you're okay, I'm okay, that kind of thing. Yeah, and if we do think that. Whatever Christ would be calling us to is something that we would not instantiate on our own uh, habits, for instance, that would not be easy or natural for us to do. Then another way of saying that exact same statement is that our default psychology will not promote X. And so therefore, if we want to promote X, we got to look at our psychology and we have to figure out ways 
around these default modes that we will inevitably sink into without work. No, that's exactly right. That's my point about the social autopilot. Those default psychological modes are like we're not being attentive or intentional about noticing how we're reacting to people the way we kind of – because if just left to our own devices, we just create pockets of similarity. Like is attracted to like. That's Nobody's being wicked in, in that. It's just the way human psycho- – we have a kind of a group, tribal psychology. We're attracted to people that like the same things, that look like us. And, and so that's kind of built into the human mind and if, and if so if you don't disengage that or, or, or adopt very intentional practices to kind of get into different social locations and spaces, then yeah, you're just going to – water will flow downhill you know, and, and we'll find ourselves you know, looking around and going like, all oh, these people are just like me. you know. And it's funny. Conservative Christians at really high levels have totally embraced that psychological fact. The entire basis for the church growth movement, which has been super influential over the last 50 years or whatever, especially in Protestantism, the number one principle of that movement is build churches of like people. That is the only way churches reliably grow and can then split off and form new churches. So they're actually using that that blunt fact for in their mind for the purpose of spreading the gospel because the, the evangelical um, conviction tends to be who cares if you're hanging out with people just like you or people not just like you? If that's how you spread the gospel, that is obviously the most important thing to do. A soul saved is the only real currency in the world. And so, yeah, use that. But it's just interesting to see a totally another kind of side group use that same principle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so those churches are huge, but they can be very homogeneous in their, in their, in their makeup. Yeah. So let's say we take this challenge and we say, okay, I don't want to be like the Pharisees uh, in some of these stories with Jesus. I don't want to be like um, the kosher Jewish Christians who reject, who resisted the Gentiles. There's such a vast time and culture difference between then and now. Obviously, it's not about circumcision and meat sacrifice to idols and stuff for us anymore. So if I want to follow this Jesus way of embracing and of fighting um, defaults in my own psychology that will keep me from doing that, how do I even tell that I'm acting like a Pharisee or acting like those particular kosher Jewish Christians? Oh, yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> so when I first wrote Unclean, I'd go around and talk to churches about all this stuff, right, that we've been talking about, like the social psychology and the emotions and and uh, the difference between liberals and conservatives and contamination and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, after you know an hour or so into the conversation, they would say, you know, okay, great. So what, you know, what, 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 what do we do? Um, to connect back to what we were saying before, I think at the end of the day, it's just really a matter of putting yourself in different spaces. I really think that is an intentional practice that one can choose to say, I need to, I need to put myself in a space that is very different from the normal space I would choose for myself. So this is easy for me to do because of my context at, at a university. So it's, this is not going to be applicable to everybody. Um, but uh, they there's a there's a black student association chapel, and I can make sure I go to their chapel. I can put that myself in that space, not to teach, but just to just to be in that space. And so I can move my body to. I could be in my office, or I could be in another space. But I could go be with our African American students and just be there and learn and educate myself and walk alongside them and 
and so on and so forth. That's an e- that's, so that's an easy thing for me to do physically. I could be here rather than there. I think for maybe maybe it's for in our cities, it's like it's like going to um, a church that is more diverse than the one you're currently in. So instead of going to the, the church that looks just like me, put myself in a church that is more multicultural or even you know a different ethnic group, a Hispanic church, let's say. You can cross socioeconomic boundaries. Um, uh, that's one of the reasons things I have done in my town. I spend nights on Wednesday night at a church called Freedom Fellowship where we walk alongside people with on the economic margins of our town. So lots of homeless people. We serve a meal too and I spend time walking in those places. Um, I lead a Bible study on Monday nights out at a maximum security prison. Uh, and for, for re- I've done that for reasons – that, that go to what we're talking about to put myself I, you know, get myself out of this kind of ivory tower college professor world that I live in and put myself out in a maximum security prison and start making friendships out there so those, I think those are concrete steps we can a- ask ourselves we can always put ourselves in different spaces um, and if that's too hard then I think there's people within our current spaces that we are probably not as hospitable to that we can move towards. So office workers or somebody standing on the, the sideline of a soccer game, um, um, a family or, a, or, or a, a, so, you know, that we could approach and kind of say, do you want to come over to our house? And that, that's kind of a person that's very different from you perhaps racially or economically or whatever that might be. And you so, – so, Again, it's disengaging the social autopilot. I normally would not have invited those particular people to my house because of whatever, my political disagreements or the fact that they're from a, you know, they're from California or Texas or whatever, but I've taken the time to get to know them and, you know, hopefully the the, the, the fruits that unfold from those experiments in hospitality are surprising friendships. It's funny cuz I recognize especially that last bit of advice from a totally different context. I recognize the maybe talk to that coworker, maybe befriend that weird parent at the soccer game from the context of evangelism, where that is the point. So you have this gospel, you know God loves you and has saved you, you want to share that. Here's a way to do it. Find these people at your in your workplace, or whatever. It's funny, we're doing the opposite here. I'm saying, how do I get rid of this psychological default that I don't want to have? Well, put myself in relationship with these other people, not for anything I'm going to give them, but for what they're going to give me simply by rubbing off on me and changing my defaults. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think that's the point when I said earlier about how God comes to us in strangers in Scripture. And so, yeah, this is reversing that distinction. I am not bringing God to them, but God comes to me in these in these unlikely friendships. So like when I went out to the prison, you, I, I didn't go out there like primarily as an evangelist. Even though I'm leading a Bible study, I'm not seeing myself that way because early on in that stay uh, or that time when I went out there, they, they asked me like, well, why do you come out here? Like you could, you know, you could give a family. Why aren't you with your wife and your kids? Like you come out here every Monday night and spend two hours with us. Like why would you do that? And I said, well, you would think it's because I'm out here trying to like bring Jesus to you, but it's not that. I'm out here because Jesus said in Matthew 25, whenever you visit the prisoner, you'll visit, be visiting me. And I said, so I'm coming out here not to evangelize but to be evangelized by you. 
And that and there are so many stories I could tell of, of that happening. Um, and I've written about these in some of my books about how I have found Jesus out there and how their faith out at the prison. I'm going to be out there this it's Monday when we're recording this. I'm going to be out there in a couple of hours. I look forward to being with them. Um, that's kind of my manna out there that sustains me in this journey. Yeah, I'm trying to do God's work out there, but I, I feel like uh, those guys have saved me more than I've done anything for them. Something that I've been finding pretty fruitful, I interviewed – some guys down in San Diego, it's an episode that at, at the recording of this hasn't been released yet, but they're using Frank Rogers' compassion practice stuff to work on issues of race. And as I understand it, he has a simple practice called the U-turn where somebody says something or something happens and you have a reaction to it. But rather than acting out of that reaction, responding out of that feeling, you pause and you turn inward and you ask yourself, why am I having this reaction. So in the case of disgust, you would say, why am I like, why did the hairs on my arms go up when those two male characters kissed in that show I'm watching? Why did I cl clutch my stuff closer when this poor person walked past me or something like that, you know? And then if you start getting in the habit of questioning those uh, automatic responses, right? In Daniel Kahneman's words, those system one responses, or in Jonathan Haidt's word, the elephant, the, the stuff that we are not thinking that is, that is automatic, if you start thinking about the automatic and looking at it, well, then you can actually start to change some of those – some, not all, um, but change some of the automatic responses and then also at least not act on the ones that don't actually align with your values. Yeah, and I would add – I mean an another resource here out of psychology is just the – the, the the connection to, with the Christian contemplative tradition with uh, the moral practices is that we, we have to acquire kind of a, a slowness in our inner life and a stillness in our inner life so we aren't so reactive to to the people around us and so right to, to create a U-turn moment you got it you got your heart has to be moving at a little slower pace than the external environment. And I, that's my big prayer. Like as I pray myself and think through these experiences, that's my big prayer is to slow my reaction time down so that when something happens that there will be a delay, a lag, and, and that in that season of delay, I can then discern and, and maybe choose a better, a, be, a better path or a better choice or a more tender, kinder, gentler approach um, to lean into this moment rather than just be triggered by it because when our inner life is – completely synchronized with the events of life, then there's no gap and you, all you are just reacting. Um, so it takes great practice and discipline and I think there's a, a lot of wealth in the contemplative tradition to kind of help us think about how we can slow our hearts down. Um, one of my favorite quotes, and I forget who said it, was like, love has a speed and its speed is slow. And that says – that's not just about our emotional reactions, but that just has to do with the pace of our lives. We can launch into a whole conversation about how the pace of our lives uh, creates this inhospitable posture. We just don't have any margin to re receive each other well and slowly hear each other's stories. Uh, I'm 100 percent in. Sometimes I tell people that this entire podcast is just a Trojan horse for contemplative practice. It isn't really, but that's kind of, for me what it's come down to so much. And I don't, I try not to universalize that to everybody, but um, that's been the difference for me. So earlier, uh, when we were talking about flight from the body and kind of the disnification of death, uh, 
we talked about um, anxiety about death and, and avoidance of death. This is something that I noticed in the book that you get into, and it's the kind of thing that I think I was raised to be suspicious of, insofar as I was raised as an evangelical to be suspicious of Freud and and kind of this uh, newfangled way of the Woody Allen type philosophy of like, this is all just avoidance of death. I was sort of taught that that was bad and wrong, I think implicitly. Um, but I'm increasingly uh, <laughs> finding reason to believe that actually our – as we become self-conscious beings, more conscious than any other creature that we know of in the universe, certainly on our own planet, that we can – project into the future and we see other people die and we project, I will die. And it's the kind of thing that if I've ever tried to think about non-existence, about the lights completely going out, I'm immediately anxious. Um, other people get anxious about persisting forever. But either way, there are these anxieties that that come up because we have this ability to forecast and so it seems more plausible to me now than it used to that our fear or our anxiety about death can have a huge impact on our day-to-day, moment-to-moment psychology. How do you think that that anxiety and fear factors into discuss psychology and all the kind of stuff we've been talking about? Well, I mean, I wrote a whole book about this uh, called The Slavery of Death. I've read half that book. It's the first thing I ever read by – I don't finish a lot of books, so don't – don't take that the wrong way. I found it incredibly helpful. I've recommended it to a bunch of people. Well, I mean, and the point of that book is is that um, you know that there's that our our anxiety about death can is can manifest in two different ways. One is kind of basic anxiety, um, and that is going to be that's kind of your basic survival anxiety, worries about threats or resources. And so, you know, all of us have resource concerns. Like we have worries about having enough energy to get through the day or getting enough sleep or paying the bills. And and so there is a sense of, you know, the resources to kind of just live. We're constantly worried about those kinds of things. Now, we might not trigger them back to death, but if you dig underneath it and peel the onion back, you know, you kind of eventually realize, like, if I don't have money, you know, then we're not going to have food to eat. And if if, if we can't pay the bill, we're going to be out on the street and we're going to lose shelter. I mean, so you, you eventually drilled back down to basic survival concerns. Now, most of us, though, that's not our main worry. A lot of us, our death anxiety is more neurotic, and so it man- more manifests itself in, in, in self-esteem and trying to live a significant, meaningful life. Uh, we're always trying to grasp for some sort of heroic ideal that makes my life worth paying attention to. I think Henry Nouwen says you know, we're always trying to either be a spectacular, relevant, or powerful. Um, and, and, and if you kind of peel that on you back, you kind of get back down to why, why does that matter? And the answer is because, well, I guess if you know, if I wasn't living this significant, meaningful life, like well, what was the point of it all? And so we get back down to kind of these existential concerns about meaning, meaning making. Um, all that to say is I, I think death anxiety is at work in many different ways. Yes, if you walk up to somebody and go, are you afraid of dying? Some of the existentially aware amongst us – you know, we think about death a lot, but a lot of people are going like, yeah, but you're probably not thinking about dying, but you're probably worried about paying your bills. You're probably exhausted. So that's basic death anxiety. You're probably worried about your golf score, you know, or your weight, or you and I, how many people are going to hit our blog or our podcast. You know, like, you know, you have these neurotic worries that, you know, if, if I get more listeners or more readers, 
you know, then somehow I matter more, um, that, I, that I've advanced my hero project a little bit by making my impact upon the world a little bit greater. Um, we all have our little neurotic uh, games that we play with ourselves. Um, now, the, where discuss psychology fits into all this is, is the degree to which we kind of shame um, – the, the failures in ourselves or in our world and disgust kind of regulates the way we kind of see the winners and the losers of the society. And so those failures become – and if we're a failure, then the, then the self-loathing is going to – the shame is going to be triggered back upon um, ourselves or we're going to be radically inhospitable to people that, um, and, and, uh, that, that seem to be failures uh, – According to the hero system of the American dream, that is so interesting, man. And so, in terms of what is what is the Christian theological response to that neurotic need? Uh, for for me, it's like, well, I have this podcast, and so I know that some thousands of people are sometimes helped by it. And I think, well, that's more people than a mega church, so obviously, I'm valuable. This is the kind of math I find myself doing all the time. Uh, before I even realize it, what's the Christian answer to that kind of thing? Like, like, what's the counter? It's the second half of the book you didn't read. <laughs> I got to finish the book. In, in a nutshell, the second half of the slavery of death, after it kind of walks through kind of the way we are all, you know, in the, in the language of Hebrews too, right, that we are, Jesus has come to set us free from the slavery um, of the fear of death, that, that, that is the power of the devil in our lives. And, and the answer I give is kind of twofold. It's kind of negative and positive. The, the first one is kind of renunciation. The Christian – and this is the contemplative tradition, right? The first move is to renounce the idols. Um, and that's, that's, that's a, always a work in progress. And so there is a, a renunciation of the ways we have constructed a kind of a false self or a false identity. So all your contemplative people here from Merton to Richard Rohr step in about how we kind of build up a false self. It's the heroic project, um, the metrics that we all have. Your metrics are your podcast metrics. I have my own trying to sell a book or my teacher ratings at the end of my semester, or a preacher is going to look at his membership and a CEO is going to look at the third quarter profits or whatever, right. you know, whatever it is. And then, we, and then we kind of parade those accomplishments before the world. Um, see, I matter. I'm significant. I'm worthy of your time and attention. And the, so I think the first move is renunciation. It's a negative. It's a destructive move, uh, the destroying of the idols. But the second one is then once that has been destroyed, then the, what replaces it? And I think – so the second move is the positive move and, and I, I, I describe it in many different ways. But I think the best way to describe it briefly is kind of what happens to Jesus at his baptism where before Jesus accomplishes anything, before he starts performing in any sort of metric in the Jordan River, he kind of receives his identity as God's beloved and that – Instead of performing for his identity but receiving it as gift, puts him in a non-competitive, non-rivalrous, non-neurotic posture towards the world because in any given interaction with Jesus, um, he wasn't in a competitive, rivalrous response, right? He didn't have to one-up that person and neither was he going to be shamed by that person's successes. 
Um, he didn't need to – when he stood before Pilate, he didn't need to act in a survival. Like not, so when, when he's with Pilate, he's in a basic death anxiety mode, like literal physical survival. And he can remain nonviolent in that moment because his life was given as a gift from the Father and he was returning to the Father. And so he wasn't competitive uh, neurotically or anxious in the face of even death. And so I think – there is something about receiving one's identity as a gift of grace that is the solution to our neurotic predicament. Yeah, one way I might phrase that second, that positive aspect of uh, of accepting our, our status is like, if God loves me and if God created a universe full of billions of galaxies, then there is, of course, nothing I can do that will justify my value up against supreme value, which is the love of God. And so I, I sometimes, if I can, when I can get those two things combined, then that can be a motivator for me. But uh, maybe in order to actually feel that more often, uh, I need to have more habitual practice of, of prayer and, and contemplation to inhabit that attitude more times throughout the average day. Well, and I think it's back to our, your point about system one and system two again. We've been talking about system one, system two, and its relationship to other people, like our automatic rapid responses. That's system one, right? Yeah. Um, and then our slower, more thoughtful responses. And so system one, though, is rapid, automatic, and emotional. It's our limbic system. But now we're just talking about system one and system two when it comes to the self and our experience of grace. I think a lot of people believe they're loved of God, system two. Like they – if you ask them, are you God's child or you, as I contemplate the cosmos, I realize that – you know, like, like – but do you feel it in your amygdala? Right. <laughs> in your limbic system, do you really experience that grace uh, somatically in your body as a felt experience? And, and I, so I, I've been – last couple months, I've been kind of playing around with that whole idea that everybody – Every Christian I know is a Christian in their neocortex, but there are very few Christians who are Christians in their limbic system. You know, people don't really believe it. Not not emotionally. Like like not emotionally. They don't feel it at that level. I think you should absolutely keep thinking about that and write a book about that, and I will buy a copy if you do. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I and I would all the other thing I would say, uh, about all that is your is your point is that's where practices of contemplation and, and worship and prayer that that's that's what those practices are doing they're trying to tra- train the limbic system into being a Christian um, it, it's it's not theology anymore it is the felt experience of being loved of God and for academic kind of people like me perhaps you and many of your listeners that's hard you know that's hard work right like we're better intellectualizing we're better with words um, but to be transported in a worship experience like that just seems a little fluffy and weird and you know uh that we we don't want to make ourselves that vulnerable perhaps to the spirit uh and so i know i hold back a lot and so i kind of stay in a very critical posture um uh when i'm in worship spaces and it's i so i've been trying to work really hard on just surrendering myself um to those moments rather than constantly critiquing the worship lyrics of the Chris Tomlin song. Well, man, <laughs> that's a, that seems like a good place to end. Um, other than links to uh, the books of yours that we have talked about, um, should I put anything else up for people who want to engage more with your work? 
No, I mean, I think my, I have a blog, Experimental Theology, at blogspot.com. I've been, I'm, I write there every day, Monday through Friday, and my Amazon page has the books coming out. I got a new one coming out in November on Johnny Cash. And so, yeah, people can check any of that out. Thank you so much, Richard. What a fantastic conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So as I mentioned earlier, instead of answering a listener question this week, I wanted to try something a little different and give you this one particular prayer practice that, I mean, I guess I've developed it, but it's it's not really much development involved, but I call it the Protestant rosary. Now, it's rosary because I use a rosary, same rosary that Catholics use for praying Hail Marys. And I call it Protestant because I don't pray to Mary when I use the rosary. So Protestant rosary. Now, in case you don't know what a rosary is, it's that prayer bead strand that looks like a necklace, but with a few extra beads and a cross at the bottom of it. You often see them draped over rear view windows in cars driven by Catholics. Now, all of you know, probably, that I love me some Catholics, and so I don't personally have any issue with people praying the rosary to Mary. I trust that it is part of their worship experience as Christians. Uh, I don't do it myself. I'm not in that place right now. But nonetheless, I find the rosary a beautiful and helpful tool for getting deeper into prayer. Now, there is a fundamental tension to ever talking about or writing about one's personal prayer practice in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to close the door to our room and to pray in secret to our Father who sees in secret. He says, don't flaunt your piety, don't brag about your charitable giving, etc. At the same time, I have benefited myself so much from reading the occasional practical guide to certain kinds of prayer. Mostly, these are written by people who've been praying for much longer than I have, and I would recommend some of these books. Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ by Madame Guyon, Beginning to Pray by Anthony Bloom, Anything on Centering Prayer by Thomas Keating, the list goes on. But this one particular practice of the Protestant Rosary is really nothing fancy, so I shouldn't really get any credit for it. And I don't normally do it as much as I'd like to, I'll say that now, so I don't belong on any kind of pedestal. But it's the kind of practice I think might be useful to some listeners of the show, especially people who are kind of in, in between traditions right now or who are wondering about more regular or structured prayer. So here's the thing about prayer beads. Prayer beads are commonly used not only in Catholic and Orthodox Christianity, but also in Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Sikhism. Add those up. You're getting something like 80%, 70% of the world's religions. In other words, there's something about beads on a string to help mark prayer that is kind of universally helpful to human brains, certainly to mine. And for me, I got to add in the fact that I'm pretty ADD and easily distracted. So the beads are really helpful. They're like a tactile way for me to refocus my mind continually during prayer. So Protestant rosary, step one, get yourself a rosary. If you have any little Catholic shops in your town, you can get them there. Those little shops are often connected to larger Catholic churches, like the main cathedral downtown if you live in or near a city. But you can also just Google it. 
and you might be surprised to find one nearby. You can also get rosaries on eBay or Amazon. Right now, there's a rosary made with olive wood beads, quote, from the Holy Land, unquote, with prime shipping for seven bucks on Amazon. I have two rosaries. I got them over 10 years ago in Mexico from a little tourist stand. I think they were like two bucks each. Uh, They have kind of a lot of sentimental value to me for reasons I won't get into. But the point is they're easy to get. So, okay, now you've got a rosary. What's next? Well, I've done a few variations on this practice over the years. I think it's probably best to experiment with things and see what works best for your brain. But here's what I've been doing recently. So a rosary has a set of 10 beads and then a single bead that's more spaced out in between each set. And it's got five of these sets. So it's got basically 50 regular beads and then five interstitial beads, 55 beads, and then a few on the bottom and then one, you know, a few on the bottom by the cross. I don't really know what you're supposed to do with those ones by the cross. I'm sure there's something that Catholics do, but since I don't do it right, I don't use those. But here's what I do. So for those, so think of it as 10, 1, 10, 1, 10, 1. For the 10 beads in a row, I pray the Jesus prayer. And the version I do of the Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. There are variations on the Jesus prayer. Some people say, have mercy on me, or they say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've heard people say it different ways. For me, I mostly leave off a sinner Not because I don't think I'm a sinner, I certainly am a sinner, but because I want to remind myself that God's mercy on us goes well beyond simply forgiving our sins. If I start praying over and over again, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, I find myself focusing on my sin, focusing on my individual salvation, or like my my place before God as an individual. And I actually have found that I want the Jesus prayer to help me go beyond worrying about my individual salvation. But that is one way that a lot of people will pray it. Um, I sometimes, while I'm praying it, I envision God's mercy as like this giant benevolent hand enveloping me or my family or various people or all of humanity. It's, you know, mercy is about flourishing and shalom and all of these other Christian phrases that are meant to capture what it would be like if the kingdom of heaven were real here on earth. Mercy is not just forgiveness of sins. But do whatever works for you. And I have also noticed that I end up switching between have mercy on me when I'm particularly down or anxious or feeling low and have mercy on us when I'm feeling particularly part of the universal humanity or thinking more specifically about my marriage or my community or my country or something like that. None of those details do I mean as instructions. It's just a little window into how I think about it in case that helps you locate yourself. Now, the Jesus prayer is really common in Eastern Orthodox circles. Millions of Orthodox try to pray this prayer literally all day long. I have never gotten even close to that, but I do find it really helpful as a way to kind of get into a more prayerful mood any time of the day. Um, But anyway, back to the Protestant rosary. So 10 Jesus prayers. And then when I reach the spacer bead, I'll do the Lord's Prayer. Now, I personally find that alternating in the Lord's Prayer is helpful because it has a bit more content. And so if my mind starts drifting during the 10 Jesus Prayers, it might get a little more focused when I bring back the Lord's Prayer. 
Now, to go around the whole rosary in this way is about eight minutes, 50 Jesus prayers and five Lord's prayers. At this point, I usually find that my mind has cleared up at least a little, sometimes even a surprising amount. And then I might do another lap, so to speak. I might go for another 55, or I might just sit in silence for a while with a clearer head, trying to be in a state of sort of prayerful attentiveness, letting distracting thoughts pass as soon as they come up. And then if I realize I'm doing that too much, I'll start doing it again to focus. Or sometimes um, what I do is I switch up the Jesus prayer at that point to be a prayer for others. So I might start praying instead of Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. I might start praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Jaffrey. That's my wife. Have mercy on dad. Have mercy on mom. Each time imagining the loving hand of God on that person. I think that this is an especially effective tool for learning to love our enemies, or at least the people that we are angry with or annoyed by. Sometimes I do multiple beads for the same person but focusing on different parts of their life. So I might do four beads for Jaffrey, each time praying the same words, have mercy on Jaffrey, but thinking about her work life, her relationship with her parents, some particular thing she's going through, you know, whatever, my marriage with her. And then the next person focusing on a few different aspects of their life. Um, speaking for myself, as someone with a bad episodic memory, I also find that this helps me remember what the people closest to me are going through to like continually be mindful of that in addition to having an impact on my own feelings and my actions toward them. And uh, if I start going down this road of praying for multiple people, I don't have any particular way to end the prayer. I think, frankly, sometimes I just get distracted eventually and the whole thing just kind of peters out. Uh, but you might like have a list of people you want to pray for and once you go through everybody on that list, you're done. So that is the main way that I use the rosary for my Protestant rosary practice. But there is another simpler way to use the rosary, which isn't exactly a Protestant way because it is very common in Orthodox Christianity, but it's to simply use all the rosary beads to count out the Jesus prayer over and over again. And this is something that you can do if you're driving in uncrowded conditions that do not require a lot of focus. Do not do this when you're driving in traffic, or if you're on a walk or you're just sitting, you might replace a podcast or listening to music with this practice every once in a while and see what it does. It takes about 12 minutes, I found, to say the Jesus prayer a hundred times. So that's twice around the rosary or a little bit, a little bit less than twice around. After 200 or so times, if you can imagine going that far, you might be surprised how your mindset has changed, like what you're noticing around you now it's really powerful. Um, and it's the kind of thing that sounds overwhelming. Like, how could you possibly say the same prayer 200 times in a row? It's not that hard. It takes 20 minutes. And I would just say try it. Like, if if you've never tried it, try it. See what happens. Uh, so this is a simpler way, not involving Mary, but not strictly speaking Protestant. Uh, I don't really have much else to say about this. I just thought it might be a cool thing to share. It's not that complicated. Um I'd love to know if anybody tries this and finds it useful, send me an email, youhavepermissionpodcast, gmail.com. And I just want to mention, this is, of course, not the entire suite of contemplative practices. Other ones you might look into are Lexio Divina, spelled Lectio, L-E-C-T-I-O, Gospel Contemplation, The Examine, Centering Prayer, to name a few. 
but this is some of the stuff that we were getting into at the end of the conversation there with Richard and seemed like a good week to share this. It's something I've been kicking around for a couple years now. The Protestant Rosary. All right. So end of the show stuff. Richard's blog is in the show notes. And uh, what else do I got to say? You can join the Patreon for bonus episodes and to ask the questions that I normally answer where I where I did this Protestant Rosary thing, as well as to vote on which episodes come next, which questions get answered, uh, and to have access to the patron-only Facebook group, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com, click become a patron. You can email me, and you should. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. What are you thinking about? What are you worried about? What would you like to hear an episode on? What did you like? What did you not like? And then finally, I would just say, share these episodes. They are meant to be a resource. They might challenge a friend, or you might have a friend who just loves this stuff and doesn't know about this show. That would be great too. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Be in touch. All you on the Facebook group, you patrons, I'm just loving you guys these days. I'm finding so much cool stuff going down on that page, and I'm really grateful for all of you. We'll see you next week.